Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on China, America, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, and my partner in crime, Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, well-known expert on all things Asian history and politics. Misha, say hello and introduce our guest. Hello, John. Well, if if this podcast is about the struggle for the 21st century, there's really no better symbol of that than the battle over artificial intelligence, 5G, and the leading commanding heights of technology. And so we're thrilled today to welcome someone who really needs no introduction, who is at the forefront all of of all of that. Uh, and that is our guest for today, Eric Schmidt. Uh, for those of you who may not have heard of Eric, uh, he is a, an accomplished technologist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Uh, he joined Google in 2001, and he helped grow the company from a Silicon Valley startup to a global leader in technology alongside its founders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Eric was Google's chief executive officer and its chairman from 2001 to 2011. He was also the executive chairman and technical advisor. In 2017, he co-founded Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic initiative that bets early on exceptional people who are making the world better. Uh, He has his own podcast, Reimagine with Eric Schmidt. Uh, He converses with leaders on exploring how society can build a brighter future after the global coronavirus pandemic. And very importantly for our purposes, uh, he's been deeply involved with the United States government, uh, with the Obama Trump and now Biden administrations. He served as the chairman of the Defense Intelligence Board and was also the chairman of the recently concluded National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and concluded by releasing their report, though I know that they'll be continuing to do work. So we are uh, thrilled that Eric is taking time to join us. Eric, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, we're thrilled to to have you to talk about... um, AI today, uh, the challenge from China, the broader question of American tech competitiveness. But I think it's it's important um, maybe to start off with the commission that you chaired that recently, uh, just a week ago or so, released its report. And this was the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And for those of uh, our listeners who who are you know well aware of of China and Asia issues, but may not be looking quite as much at the tech side, can you just briefly? Tell us what the commission was, uh, who was on it, what you did, and then we want to talk about some of the conclusions that you came up with. The commission was set up a bit more than two years ago by Congress as a bipartisan commission to provide recommendations to the federal government on national security issues involving AI. We were given a pretty broad set of questions to ask, and we were given plenty of money and a staff, surprisingly. Uh, that produced a report that's now available to the public uh, in nsc.nsaai.gov. And I encourage people to read it or at least read the first parts of it and find what you find most interesting. We concluded a number of things, but the most important thing we concluded was that America is not yet ready to win the upcoming AI competition, that we are not prepared for the challenges that lay ahead, Um, that China is organized to win, is following us closely, 
is likely to dominate certain areas. And there are areas where we have a chance of maintaining our dominance and competitive strengths, but only if we act now and in a fairly resolute way. So I was going to ask you exactly about that quote, uh, which which is out in the press when the report was released, which, which you state, America is not prepared, remains unprepared for the coming era. Um, before we can get to the solutions, I, I think Part of the question is why, you know, the the fundamental questions of why the commission thinks after all these years, after everything that that we poured into uh, these technologies early on, why is it that we're we're unprepared? Is it a cultural problem? Is it a business problem? Are we short-sighted? Do we not take it seriously enough? Because otherwise the recommendations aren't going to matter if we don't get to the to the fundamental reason of why this country, after how much time and how much money, remains, in your view, unprepared. I think the new news is that we have a new focused competitor in the form of China and her global aspirations. During the time of the report, China announced its intent to master and eventually dominate artificial intelligence, semiconductors, energy, transportation, quantum, synthetic biology, and software platforms. By the way, that's my whole world. That's all of the engine in front of America for trillions of dollars of new businesses, new global markets, and new platforms. So China's rise has brought with it a new competitor, an able competitor that is organized under different values, runs things differently, and is executing well against its goals. The the report, and I, I agree. We're gonna we'll probably put up a, a link to it uh, when we um, uh, when we post our, our podcast because I get people should go and read it. It is not a short report. It's seven hundred pages. Um, there are three hundred pages of recommendations in the report. Um, but do the recommendations, in your view, begin somewhere? Meaning, is there a fundamental starting point for America to take this seriously and and to reorient itself uh, to to rise to the challenge? Is it talent development in, in basic and advanced math? Is it intellectual property protection? Uh, what is it where, where we have to start at, or otherwise we're not going to be able to get down the road? We need a plan to win, or at least not lose. And we need ownership in the government. The American system, which is phenomenal, is relatively decentralized. There's an awful lot of people doing many different things that they find interesting. It's typically not coherently planned. The Chinese model is centrally planned. The goals are set out. We call for a technology competitiveness council that would be headquartered under the vice president to serve as a steering commission commission to assemble the activities. There are enormous activities in the federal government and in the research institutions that are consistent with the direction that we're talking about, but they're not coordinated, they're not leveraging each other. There are huge issues around talent. Uh, Much of the talent is misapplied and basic talent is not being used in the right way. There are issues around funding, in particular research funding and funding for transformational research and especially on the semiconductor problem. There are uh, partner problems. We won't succeed without having partnerships with like institutions and democracies, the so-called techno-democracies, who share our values. And by the way, this must include Japan, 
South Korea, perhaps India, in order to do this. So if you look at it systematically, you need a top-down leadership focus, you need a plan, you need the people, you need some money and platforms, and you need some serious partners. And we also emphasize that we want to win using America's values. It's easy to imagine that this new technology could be misused in ways that are not consistent with American values of liberty, freedom, non-discrimination, privacy, etc. Those all, all have to be maintained in these tools and outcomes. So you've been talking about uh, this race, whether it's AI, specifically the broader um, uh, race in, in advanced computing for, for a long time. And, and we've actually been able to talk about it. You've been at Hoover a number of times. You've been mm-hmm. quite involved with, with us and with, um, with George Schultz uh, before he passed on, on talking about these issues. Um, and, and one thing I always wanted to ask you, because you would, you know, you'd talk about it and, and everyone would get very worried. Um, and then we'd all try to come up with, you know, how would we begin to approach it very much like what the commission did. But I always wanted to ask you if there was in your mind a red line that would make clear to you that we had fallen behind. And, you know, falling behind is, is obviously it's, it's a comparative, uh, you know, it's a way of assessing comparatively across a whole range of, of, uh, of different technologies and, and productive capacities and the like. But is there something in your mind that says, okay, it's now fundamentally different. We are no longer the leader. We are now in a position of racing to catch up. What is it? And, 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 and what should we be looking for? So we know what that was for China. And we know it was the day, and I know because I was there, that the Chinese Go champion was beaten by AlphaGo. And we know, among other things, because the the whole match was televised throughout the the country of a billion people. And once he started losing, they shut down the television show. Um, But we know that that spurred them to act. For us, I would suggest our 5G situation is the first red line. So to review, uh, China has 720,000 5G stations, adding 600,000 more towers. America has about 50,000 such towers. Uh, The telcos in China have unfettered access to a total of 600 megahertz for very high-speed 5G connectivity in the right spectrum. We just auctioned about 100 megahertz of that spectrum for $90 billion and further indebted our own telcos, which makes it even harder for them to compete with China. I estimate that we are a factor of 10 behind China. And it's unlikely that our that we can catch up even with changes in our strategy because of the delays in our action, which are complicated. Why does this matter? Well, 5G matters and you'd like your phone to work better and so forth. But 5G is a core component of autonomy, which is a core component of military advantage. 5G will be a core component of new applications. If those applications are first invented in China and become popular globally, then they will cut off markets for our high-tech startups here in America that hope to be the next Facebook and Apple and Google and so forth. So there's consequences to losing. Now, none of us five years ago thought that this was remotely possible. I'll give you another example of TikTok. TikTok has taken the world by storm and American teenagers by storm. Such a great concern that President Trump tried to 
essentially halt their success in the United States. That work does not seem to have halted it. In fact, they seem to be doing well because the strategy of containment wasn't the right one. So for our geopolitical relations with China, we have to understand something new. The fight is no longer over aircraft carriers and nuclear bombs, important fights from years ago. It's over global platform dominance. And the country that controls the global platform is the one that will get all the returns, both in national security and economics. I'll give you an example. This morning, I was doing a review in the, of a quantum business, which I'm associated with. And in the last few months, China has become the undisputed leader in quantum communications, and they have become a large, a large new effort around quantum computing, which is thought to be, this is the rumor, that their goal is to break all of the encryption that we're currently used for our secure communications. That's not a good thing. So my point is that each of these battles is underway now, and we need a strategy to to win. I call this the global competitiveness strategy. And I want the West to win these. I want it to win with our Pacific partners. And I want our country to get organized around focusing on this. So, um, Eric, I'm uh, coming to you from uh, the Berkeley Law School. Yes. Hi. And the rumor, the rumor is that you lived in International House as a student right across the street as a PhD student. And that, in fact, you met your wife there. Is that all true? Confirm that for Uh, (laughs) all of us at the campus before we turn to serious questions. uh, That's (laughs) completely true. And I remember the law school very, very well. Just because we blocked your view of the bay, I guess, That's right. your, <laughs> your Ber- college Ber- dorm. Berkeley was and remains a fantastic institution, uh, and I remain associated with Berkeley along with Stanford. I cannot say enough good things about the impact that you both have. Well, I was going to ask you, because um, you know, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, of course, research and development. Suppose you were – I guess this is one of the things you haven't yet done, but there's still time for you. You haven't run a university Suppose you were the president of a university and you wanted to move forward in the ways that you've been describing on AI, these other platforms, what would you do? What kind of programs would you build? How would you try to direct students and faculty research in in these important ways? I think universities have met this challenge. Um, If you look at Berkeley, for example, because I know the numbers, there has been an explosion in computer science and AI to the point where they're producing thousands of graduates of both uh, liberal arts as well as out of their engineering school. Uh, Across the United States, it's also true at Stanford, the number one major is computer science, and the most popular sub-major within computer science is machine learning and AI. So there's good news, and the good news is that the young men and women who are in our universities today are going to come out with world-beating knowledge and world-beating ideas if we can get the rest of the world organized to take advantage of that. Universities are also have done a fantastic job of moving the research in areas that are important, uh, in particular in the area of ethics, and scale, and so forth. But, re- but universities need some things. So if I were a university president, aside from dealing with all the usual problems that a campus president has now, and it's a, tar- it's a hard job, you wouldn't have to worry about fundraising, for example. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough role. I would try to yeah. do a number of things. I would try to get the university professors as a group to operate with the government to create a national research AI facility. 
Much of this AI research, and we talk about this in our report at Great Lake, requires very large supercomputing computing calculations, much more than is the normal amount of research that a university has. Our report calls for a national research network of open source data and training material that would allow for research to proceed more quickly at the graduate level, and also for those graduate students to leave and form startups, right? Yeah, the ones living in international house right now exactly. in those little 500-square-foot apartments. And it, it was fine at the time. But let me tell you, 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 <laughs> you, you, you get, you get the, ta- the raw talent that's in our universities. The next thing that I would do is I would remind everybody how dependent we are on foreign smart people. We looked, one of the questions we asked was, who is driving this industry forward? And the answer is, the stereotype is true. The top universities, the top graduate students, and the top graduate students are usually 20 to 40% international, often with a Chinese researcher, graduate student. So if you were to ban those people from America, which various people have suggested, it would hurt America. Instead, we should encourage the top people to come here, and then we should keep them here by giving them by giving them the appropriate visas with the appropriate security checks. So it seems to me that the current research enterprise in universities, if you combine with the necessary infrastructure that they need, can move us aggressively forward. The Chinese model, by the way, is pouring money into their graduate programs in the model that they use, which is called civil military fusion. So we know they're doing it. We need to do the same. So uh, the second set of questions is, um, you know, I I don't think in America we would be as uh, worried about another country becoming dominant in a platform if it were, you know, what you called them, you know, uh, similar uh, democracies with similar values. So if it were France or the UK, would we be as worried? So I, I wanted to ask you about your perceptions of China and its intentions. Um, for example, tell us about your first trip to China and your last trip to China. And did you see a change in the intentions of their leadership, in the culture? Um, has this been a change or has it been going on all along and we just didn't see it? Um, did you, what did you see as an exec- a business executive when you were there on the ground visiting? My first trip to China, I was at Sun, and we were setting up the Internet of China. We should tell everyone that's Sun Microsystems, which doesn't exist anymore, but I remember it. (laughs) And uh, I had just graduated from Berkeley and and so forth. And it was a country of bicycles, and Mm. there were a small amount of connectivity, and the first connection was set up in Tsinghua University, and Mm. I was done using Sun, Sun Computers. I remember it because I was talking to the faculty who never got their PhDs in physics and so forth because they were victims of the Cultural Revolution, but they had returned with great courage and had helped build a great country. Um, But I remember the bicycles more than anything else, and I have the pictures to prove it. My last visit uh, was with Dr. Kissinger, who is a good friend of mine, and I'm writing a book with him. And we oh, were there. We were tell, there. Tell us about that later yeah. in the show, because that'd be really yeah. And uh, and it's a book about AI. But uh, oh. but but with uh, with Dr. Kissinger, we went and toured the usual spots in Beijing. And the most interesting thing were the private dinners. 
who with people who are executives, not unlike the executives that we deal with in the tech industry, very wealthy, very smart, mm -hmm. very successful, and their hopes and fears. They are proud of what their country has achieved. They're proud of the safety. They're proud of the security. They're proud of the growth. They're proud of the products. They're proud of its global ambition. But they all wanted to send their children to America for education. So I thought that, that the, the secret to dealing with China, in my view, is that there are globalists in all of these countries who see the world a better place where we communicate with each other, where we understand how to coexist, where we, where we compete when it's appropriate and we collaborate when it's not, when it's appropriate. And we obviously don't want any sort of combat. And uh, I was struck by the, 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 the hopes and fears were much more similar than I expected. Mm -hmm. China today is a very, very modern country, at least in the cities. Um, and the, you know, if you grow 6% a year for 30 years, which is roughly what, what the CCP has delivered, um, fastest growing country in the world. So I have taken the view, which is different from other China scholars, that I'm just going to take China for what they say. I'm just going to believe what they say. Here's what they say. We're going to have a peaceful rise. We're going to limit our ambitions to our local area, which that's code for Taiwan. We are going to build the uh, kingdom on the hill in terms of, of our central, our, our kingdom. And the conception that Chinese have is that they were in a kingdom where everyone paid them credit. And then 150 years ago, because of various political errors, they lost their way and they want to come back. So I take them at their word that they're organized to do that, that they have the economics and the control and the laws that will allow them to do that. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying I take it. And the reason I'm saying that is if you take them at their word, then you have to believe that they are going to be our primary economic and national security competitor for the next 20 or 30 years. And the reason is because that's what they've said they're doing. We don't have to sort of, uh, of investigate deeply in the intelligence apparatus they actually published it. So, Eric, actually, to, to pick up off of that, this is Misha again. Um, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago the, the questions of cooperation and collaboration and then competition on the other side. And, and as you, I think, exactly point out correctly, they've made no secret of the, the competitive uh, elements of, of their strategy. Uh, do you find as you talk to them that you actually see there's there are areas of cooperation uh that benefit us or is it simply cooperation that benefits the chinese meaning ultimately it's really zero game zero you know it's a zero zero sum game that we lose through what we think is cooperation because the chinese see cooperation uh as a way to continue to build the national strength of China, whether it's made in China 2025, indigenous innovation, civil military fusion, whatever it is. So I'm an amateur in foreign policy, but I have opinions now. So I'll just say, state them. Please. Um, I spend an awful lot of people time with people who make pronouncements, which sound to me like Cold War pronouncements. We love them. We hate them. We block them. We fight them. And I think that that is a very unnuanced view. We're not at war with China. 
we are competing with China. If you were at war with China, you would do different things. But since we're in a competition with China, we want to make sure that we're always acting in our own best interest. So for example, full decoupling of trade with China, literally the goods that flow back and forth between the two countries would be crazy because all it would do would be drive up our prices and it would hurt them as well. And I'll give you a simple example of, of how this works. Look at Apple. I used to be on the board there and it's an impressive company. Um, their products are made in Shenzhen. They have huge government relations issues with respect to iPhones and apps and so forth in China. Don't you think the Chinese government would like to get rid of them? Of course they would, but they can't because they need them as an indigenous partner. They need the eco economy. They need the training. They need the income, the knowledge transfer. They need the modernization. Don't you think Apple would prefer to build those products in a country that wasn't hassling them over all of these other issues? Don't you think they'd prefer to have a nice democratic country that could actually build everything at the same quality and cost as China? Of course they would, but they don't have an alternative. So they're forced to work together and they're not best friends, but they found a way to make it work. They have a lot of meetings, they have a lot of yelling, but they have a mutual interest in the success of their product platform. That I think is the way this will evolve. In our report, we specifically say that areas of software are going to be very difficult to withhold from China and vice versa. And the reason is that software leaks, it, 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 the ideas are, are flowing. It's, there's very little advantage of one over another. China, the moment they get something from us, they improve it. And then somebody from us gets their ideas and takes it back. There's, there's, the software industry is very leaky in that sense. However, our report says that it's really important for us to find a way to maintain two generations of software, of semiconductor leadership ahead of China. Now, the history here is important. Um, in the 1980s, we created a group called Semitech. We had a bunch of, of uh, semiconductor manufacturing in America. Eventually, that all moved to East Asia, primarily Singapore, and then South Korea, and now Taiwan through TSMC. The most important chips are made in Samsung and TSMC, South Korea and Taiwan. China has had for 30 years a plan to try to catch up. It's really difficult. We don't want them to catch up. We want to stay ahead. And so we call for all sorts of techniques to try to make sure that we rebuild our domestic semiconductor and semiconductor manufacturing facility within the United States. And this is important, by the way, for our commercial industry, as well as for national security for obvious reasons. And by the way, chips, I'm not just referring to CPU chips. There's a whole new generation. I'll give you an example of sensor chips that sense things. It's really important that those be built in America. You're, you mentioned Semitech, which I assume in schools is probably taught as a, you know, a, a the unsuccessful effort in industrial policy. So that's what I want to get at. Like, what's the good, what's the right line between right, industrial policy, but right. also letting the free market work, which is right, created companies like Google. And yeah. And I, I think that what, what I've learned, I've been doing this now for 15 years with the Obama white house and then with Trump and now with the Biden folks. And if you propose an industrial policy 
you are dead in the water. So whatever I'm proposing is not industrial policy. (laughs) Just my definition. (laughs) It's not industrial policy. Okay. So whatever you think it is, I'm not doing that. Right. (laughs) And, And the reason I say this is that, is that there's this reflexive view in America that government cannot do this kind of planning. And let's just review our competitor, China, has a central policy. It's very well articulated, by the way. Um, They have huge and rough domestic competition. They pick the winner out of that brutal internal competition. They make that winner a national champion. And because of civil military fusion, you must assume that there is a, a military component of each of these companies that we don't know about. That's their model. Now, the American model is laissez-faire. You know, two, two people create a company, lots of wealth is created, everyone, everyone is happy. This works in, until when it doesn't. It doesn't, it has not worked in semiconductors. It didn't work in 5G, for sure. It may or may not work in synthetic bio. It may or may not work in some of these new AI areas. So I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced again. And we need to say that there is a role for government in a couple of areas. One is publishing a plan. Second is printing money, which is what the government does these days, to help fund the the pre-competitive work, as it's called, the research work, strengthen our American research institutes, et cetera. Research spending in America is at the lowest percentage it's been since Sputnik in 1957, which is 0.7%. So our incredible economic growth, which I'm very, very pleased to say I'm the beneficiary of and I'm really lucky, was due to things that occurred in the 50s and 60s and 70s when we were awash in money in those areas because of Sputnik and so forth. We need to repeat that. So I'm not suggesting that we need to have industrial policy because you said, as I said, anything I say is not industrial policy. What I am saying is we've got to be a little smarter. So for example, let's use 5G just to hammer on that. The Chinese yeah. gave, the, the, um, gave the frequencies to their telcos with a build-out requirement. We auctioned off one-sixth of that frequency for $80 billion further indebting the telcos who don't have any money to build out the same infrastructure. It's madness. Now, that's not industrial policy. That's just bad policy, right? So so put another way, whatever we're doing now in these areas is producing the wrong outcome. Just to hammer on it a bit more, we talk a lot about the federal government's technical capabilities. Um, the government is full of very smart generalists. There are very few people who can delve into and manage the technology that I'm describing. We call for a federal training program, which includes a four-year university with a five-year give back working for the federal government to bring in technically skilled people who can help administer these programs. Because one of the problems is that the customer on the federal side doesn't understand the implications of these things uh, in the way that they are. And we're going to face enormous issues uh, in cyber attacks, for example. You're going to have very sophisticated third-party actors that will be able to use software to do all sorts of misinformation attacks, other kinds of attacks. I want our government to have people who can protect us. 
So I think I mean, you're, you're, so, so getting, oh, the policy, getting the policy right, which allows for the competition to occur, is important. And getting the right people who understand it is important. I mean, your argument is, uh, is our classic uh, claim that uh, you know, price signals in the market can't function here because consumers are not right, fully capturing the benefits of these products. And you know, society is misdirecting resources by relying solely on the market. The counterargument is, what if the Chinese make a mistake? Right, They're so directed in picking technologies champions. We've seen that with other countries. They may end up like France picking Minitel as their, you know, yeah. works to, you know, like, like what, how do we, you know, and we could fall into that same problem too. Exactly. Right. Well, so I what, think, there, we, the, uh, well, first place, protected. I think, I think that praying that your competitor is going to fail is not your best strategy, right? That's a strategy when you only have a losing strategy ahead of you. In other words, we don't have any good options. So let's just hope our competitor screws up. Of course, That's they the American screw way. Up. Yeah, it's okay. Of course they could screw up. By the way, they're busy building all sorts of powerful missiles. They are, are ahead of us, uh, allegedly, in hypersonics. Um, yeah. uh, they're ahead of us in drones. You know, if they're going to screw up, they're going to screw up in in some things other than the areas they're already leading in, right? So we got that point. Um, the, the way you do this in America is you build a consensus on what winning looks like. And you have to get people to say, this doesn't make any sense. So in the competition with China, it doesn't make any sense to take the smartest people in America and send them to China. I just, Americans are intelligent people. Everyone would say that's kind of like a stupid plan, right? Don't do that. Similarly, for key technologies in the semiconductor area, we should probably limit their access. Right? So I think that, that, that you can come to a consensus on these. And I think that uh, there are all these intellectual arguments about platforms and, and failure and uh, can the government make it right? And there's a presumption of government incompetence. But you have plenty of successful groups. The National Science Foundation um, has largely been successful in what it's done. It founded under Vannevar Bush, uh, uh, basically created what we have today. The industries that I work in all have largely come through NSF funding and other associated funding. You had DARPA and ARPA, which were government-funded government, uh, government funded, but civilian-controlled activities. Right? So you have plenty of examples of this. We just need more of them. By the way, we also uh, propose a national technology foundation that would attempt to bridge the valley of death between some technologies and their commercialization. So we think that we just need more of everything. You're going to have some failures. You're not going to get great. And I don't want the government to pick winners. I do want the government to pick winning categories. The category of AI, the category of semiconductors, et cetera. So actually, Eric, to, to pick up on that, um, we, you mentioned you've, you've worked with the Obama White House. You've worked with the Trump White House. You're now working with the Biden uh, administration. Um, but there, there was uh, an attempt uh, to take a different route w with China and in relation particularly to some of these tech questions uh, by the Trump administration compared to uh, administrations before it, uh, whether it was Huawei and ZTE, it was looking at access to chips. Um, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? And and what are the what do we need to do to to make it right under the Biden administration? Um, 
I'm not a fan of the Trump administration, but I, I so put that in context. Uh, I think that their overall instinct was correct, that a change of strategy was needed. And I think the tactics did not work very well. So let's give them credit for saying the world has changed. We need a different way to approach. But I'll give you an example of TikTok. So uh, the president and his team attempted to block TikTok from operating in the United States. They ultimately brokered a deal that would force the cloud hosting of TikTok to be 85% controlled by Oracle. Um, that deal did not go through either. So basically nothing has happened. So after all of the Sturm and drag and all the excitement and all the politics and all the deadlines, nothing really happened. The correct strategy for TikTok, if you're concerned about the Chinese government taking private information from Americans, is to have TikTok put its data in a US regulated cloud provider, of which there's at least three well known ones Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and maybe, maybe some others, maybe even the Oracle platform could do it. But the important point is that if you, if you can define the problem, there is probably a technology solution that goes right at the issue, right? So there's a good one. In 5G, the simple answer is we've got to come up, and again, the, the, the president, uh, President Trump, and I, I spoke about this a number of times with the, the White House, um, they understood it, but they couldn't figure out a, a solution. We need a solution. I proposed one involving sharing frequencies, but, but you, we can debate that. We need a solution that is competitive with China within two to three years. At the moment, there is not one on the table. So that's a work item. I'll give you another example. TSMC, Taiwanese company, well-run, important partner of, uh, of the tech industry, is producing five nanometer chips, moving next year to three nanometer chips. Nanometers refer to the spacing between the, the wires, if you will. And uh, this defines everything in terms of performance and value. Uh, the U.S. players have largely not been able to get to that threshold. How do you want to solve that problem? The Trump administration had a good idea, which was to try to get domestic fabs in the United States. It's not enough because you're not going to get the leading edge stuff. So we need more. Our report says that we need a national semiconductor strategy, which addresses the commercial needs as well as the national security issues. We think it's going to cost 30 to $40 billion because we don't think that the private sector, this goes back to John's point, the private sector is not going to raise 30 to $40 billion on a hope and a prayer for a semiconductor plant that's owned in the US and Arizona, which is where they all seem to be. So you're going to have to have some kind of federal guarantee, some kind of fair, federal purchase cooperative, or some mechanism that causes that thing to get built. So those are actions where you have a precise goal, a, a precise trade goal, a precise competitive goal, which the government can do, and we recommend those. So we've been talking about this divide between the U.S. Uh, and China, but you've also been intimating, as you've talked about what government can and can do and what it should and shouldn't do, about another divide uh, that's, that's just as significant, which is the divide between Silicon Valley and, and Washington, different perceptions. You, you said a few minutes ago you're not a foreign policy specialist, and John and I are not business people and tech specialists, um, and we have different views. You know, We, we look uh, at China from often from a national security perspective. Uh, Silicon Valley 
looks at it from a from a business perspective. How and you straddle both worlds. You're one of the few who does that. You're sort of the Bernard Baruch of our age, right? You're you're straddling both of those worlds, which is vital, and we need that. Um, and I think you were part of one of the Hoover initiatives that uh, our colleague H.R. McMaster and Amy Zeger ran on on trying to bridge that divide. Um, how big is that divide? And and do you have confidence? that the two sides, first of all, even understand each other and understand each other's concerns. And then we can actually work to repair it because the ultimate benefactor of that is is the country or do the companies simply see themselves as, as global and not particularly American? Um, l- let me state for it that I thought that the Hoover work that Amy and HR did with you, I think we're helping, was mm-hmm. really phenomenal work. And it really helped me a lot. So thank you for inviting me for that. Um, It's so easy to do this in sound bites, but it's much more interesting to do this with real knowledge of what's going on in the country. And I think that's what your scholarship involves. And I think the same needs to be said for the tech versus the government narrative. Because of what happened at Google, there's this presumption that tech doesn't want to work with the government, which is certainly not true. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies, including all of them, including Google, that are trying to work with the government and they find it difficult because the government has Byzantine and bizarre ways in which it works with the private sector. Um, They have a comfortable relationship with the primes, the prime contractors, because they exist to serve the government. So they've all sort of adapted. But a commercial company that has important technology that the government needs finds it very, very difficult to work with the government in a procurement cycle for many reasons. I was the head of the Defense Innovation Board uh, and working for the Secretary of Defense for five years, and I saw this firsthand. To give you an example, uh, if you have an idea of a new product, there's something called the program of record, and this so-called POM process is uh, it's a plan for two years from now. So if you have an idea you plan now for two years from now to start the award of the contract to begin building the product. So to say that this is slow is an understatement. And we're facing an aggressive global competitor. So this is a well-understood problem, but the solution is not obvious. And people have struggled this for a long time. But I would tell you that uh, all of the tech companies are now trying to work with the, the government the all of the tech companies have essentially AI ethics boards, which try to determine if something is crosses their own ethics policies, which I support. Each company is is different, but they're similar. As part of our military work, we got the government to announce a military ethics AI ethics rule, uh, which I was also very satisfied with. So I think the process, which was tumultuous, ended up with players who understand what their goals are and and now we have to get them to work closer together. Um, There are quite a few proposals within the government as to how to do this, but think of it as there needs to be an innovation group, a technology insertion group that's much bigger than what they have today, or these technologies will be built in the commercial sector and not used in the military. 
So Eric, a final question before we let you go, though, we'd, we'd love to keep talking, but mm-hmm. um, you, you talked a little bit, or I was very happy you actually anticipated um, uh, this question a little bit. In the beginning, you talked about a tech alliance of democracies. You know, we have to work with countries that share our values, um, but it's it's so much, it appears to be really a China-U.S. competition. It's really a China-U.S. heavyweight bout and and other countries are in different weight classes right they're middleweights some are flyweights you know maybe we've got a light heavy in there but is is it really realistic that that we can find other countries that can make material uh contributions to what we need to do in order to maintain uh our our level of competitiveness and in fact as you said to keep ahead in certain areas let's say two generations ahead or or let's be honest are we really alone is it really just all about us and if we mess it up there's no one that's going to come to our aid and and china's going to sweep the board i think i have a clear answer to that which is um let's think about how good korea is in some things and if we had a really close relationship with Korea, as well as Taiwan, we would be in a stronger position. Uh, my friend Jared Cohen talks about the techno T12, the 12 countries that have, they're at a certain size. They have big industries. They have a lot of technology capability, and they have a lot of money, and they have a lot at stake. I think it's obvious that unifying them will make us stronger. Um, and we should be able to compete and win in the majority of the areas. And so one way to think about this is we're now in a competitive race and the stakes are huge. We estimated that the AI market was $15 trillion, that the quantum market was $10 trillion. In, this is in global revenue. So these are very large industries that we are competing for. And what happens is, I'm sorry to, to bash the, the traditional dialogue, but the traditional dialogue is all around traditional bombs, traditional tanks, traditional steel, traditional wheat. Those are static objects. We're talking about technologies that learn, that grow, that change their platforms. They provide the basis of whole new industries. We need the United States with its allies to be the winner globally for those. Well, that's great. It's it's also a um an optimistic point at which to end because often you know our, our discussions they they get in depth, but they really don't seem to lead us to a way out. Uh, again, it, it's the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, uh, uh People should go and and read the report. Uh, there's sections on the intelligence community. There's sections on how this interfaces with uh, obviously with with the civilian economy, but but it really is about ultimately ensuring uh, the defense uh, of of the homeland. And there's lots of other questions we would have loved to have gotten to, uh, but this was extraordinary. We we really appreciate your time, uh, what you're doing, and, and obviously we hope that uh, you'll you'll stay engaged uh, not only with us at, at Hoover, but, but be able to come back to the Pacific Century and talk to us about how we're doing, maybe a report card update in a few years. So uh, on behalf of John, uh, Eric Schmidt, thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. Thank you, John. Thank you, Misha. And I'll see you soon. This 
podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.